Hi, I'm Dr. Adrienne McKeon, AKA the Story Whisperer. I'm here to help creators of all stripes to discover, shape, and share the narrative gems buried within them. This season, 2020 Hindsight, is all about recognizing both the challenges we overcame and the unexpected gifts we received from the unprecedented events of the year 2020. Life handed us a jar of expired olives, and we each made our own unique version of a quarantini. And if these inspirational stories should happen to inspire you to share yours, well, that's allowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the That's Allowed podcast. I'm your hostess, Adrienne McKeon, and today we have Rachel LeWitt. Please, darling, introduce yourself. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I am super happy to be here with you, Adrienne, and all of your listeners. Um, my name is Rachel LeWitt. I am a born and raised Philadelphian living here in West Philly. It is an absolutely gorgeous day outside right now. I'm feeling very hopeful about all of that and what it brings. Um, saw lots of flowers on my walk home. Um, I am a communicator by profession and I suppose by nature as well. And I'm really excited for the conversation that we're gonna have today around how ideas spread. And I'm sure that it will <laughs> uh, go in lots of different directions. Um, but looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So just to contextualize a little bit for folks, we had this wonderful conversation um, when we were first introduced and we talked a little bit about Rachel's experience in 2020. And that sparked for me this idea of talking about how ideas spread, thinking about the pandemic and, you know, that spreading, but also how ideas have been spreading during the pandemic. So let's just dive right into that. I think that's kind of the story that people are not getting, right? So can, can you tell us a little bit more about that for you? Absolutely. So I think that one of the things that I paid attention to early on in the pandemic, just because of like who I am and, and the types of things that I think about was that there were messages around the contagion, which is to say the actual virus of COVID-19 or SARS, COVID, COVID-19, whatever the actual virus is, COVID-19 disease, the one that we've been living and breathing with, unfortunately, for over a year now. And I was paying attention to the fact that there, at the same time that there was information about the virus, the virus itself was spreading. And the information was spreading too. And one of the things that I pay attention to in my line of work um, is symbolism. Right. And so if you recall before, maybe around this time last year, the symbol of wearing a mask had a totally different meaning than what it means now, now that it's been blessed by the CDC, now that it's been adopted in a widespread way. Um, people who wear masks today, um, you know, depending on what political persuasion you have, tend to be people who believe that the virus is real. And so they've taken the same advice um, as uh, social distancing and um, you know, not touching surfaces when that was a thing. Um, and so mask wearers are this 
symbol of people who believe in the virus. But at the beginning of the pandemic, that was not the case. And people who were wearing masks were thought to be sick. There were people who were preventing themselves from spreading disease. And so I was paying attention to something even as, um, as symbolic, but like minute as that, as a way to understand how um, ideas themselves around the mask wearing and, and other types of things related to the pandemic were spreading. And so it's to me, like the mask is kind of the symbol in and of itself at, of how ideas about the virus were spreading over time. That is so interesting. I have definitely noticed trends and changes in when people wear masks, why people wear masks, how people with masks are treated. That's another thing I've noticed. Um, yeah, there was a, a a little you know little anecdote here. A friend of mine was uh, walking around in her neighborhood, and she was wearing a mask, and you know pushing her baby in a stroller. And this woman came up to her with no mask on and said to her, "You know, you don't have to wear a mask outside. You just don't." And you know she didn't know how to respond in that moment. She felt very sort of like attacked by that, and she just said, um, "I'm good, thanks." Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that thought about it later and was like, yeah, I don't like, there's so many other things I could have said in that moment, but I just wanted her to know, like, you know, I, it wasn't bothering me to wear a mask to me. It was saying to her, I care about you. I don't want you to get sick. And that's what the the symbol of the mask was to her was just, Hey, I care. Totally. And I think that that that's also a good when did that story happen? That actually happened. Um, that's a good question. I think it was like in December, I want to say of 2020. So it was kind of, you know, <laughs> after the kind of first big wave had happened and already kind of died down, but then was starting to ramp up again. And here in Seattle in particular, I think we've had a different experience than a lot of people have because this was kind of ground zero. This is where it kind of started. And so we started wearing masks earlier around here than, than other areas. And so I think because of that, there was a stronger kind of backlash of like, we're sick of wearing masks. We don't want to wear masks anymore. When can we stop wearing masks? And so we got that really strong uh, polarization of mask wearers and non-mask wearers here. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. Um, and the reason I had even asked about what time, you know, when in the timeline that, that happened is because uh, part of the change in how people view mask wearing, aside from being contextual by culture and geographic location, is also that recommendation by the CDC of, okay, mask wearing is not just to protect another person, which it was at a certain point in time during the t- pandemic, I think maybe around may june to september but then at some point and i um at some point it 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 changed and it was also about protecting yourself so it's interesting hearing that um the anecdote that you shared because it's it's also reflective of two different messages that both parties have one one party believes that you don't need to wear a mask outside um which i think in most cases is I mean, I'm not, I'm by no means a scientist, but I think a lot of people have adopted that um, perspective. Mm -hmm. And there are also lots of people who are just like, you know, do or die with masks. Um, And this is, it's important to wear all the time if you're outside um, for both protecting yourself and protecting other people. 
So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's fascinating kind of thinking about that one kernel of an idea and the way that it manifests, which is in this mask wearing, um, but two totally different sets of beliefs that both people yeah. in that conversation have. Yeah. Like she felt like she was doing something kind. And this woman felt like she was attacking her by wearing a mask saying, you need to be wearing a mask too. That was what the mask said to her, that it was an oppression that like, you know, I'm wearing a mask. And so therefore you should too. And you're a jerk because you're not wearing a mask, which again was a complete, you know, sort of projection on her part, but it's very interesting. These little conversations we have in our minds. I know when I'm out, you know, walking, I'll, for the most part, you know, not be wearing a mask because I'm just out walking by myself. But if I see somebody else, I will put a mask on again as just sort of a politeness gesture of like, look, mm -hmm. I see you. I care. I don't want, <laughs> in case I'm sick, I don't want you to get sick too. But it is interesting, those weird little interactions that you have with people, especially outside where the rules are a little bit fluid. And totally. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm sure we'll move on at some point from talking about mask wearing, but <laughs> the symbol will change again, right? Like yeah. earlier today, I was with a colleague and she was vaccinated. Um, I'm not yet vaccinated, but I will get my first shot on Monday. Congratulations. And, thank you. And so it felt safer to be maskless, you know, still maintaining some distance with her, but, you know, on the same picnic blanket. And so two people um, not wearing masks together in public six months ago, that would have meant that we were part of the same household or maybe a year ago. Um, but now it means something different because different parts of the population are at different status levels. And so that status level has like ramifications on um, how they can be perceived and, um, and operate in society. Absolutely. So tell us more about how, where this got you thinking in terms of just the spread of information around the virus. Yeah, I mean, I think it, the idea of how ideas spread is really comes from the diffusion research. Um, if you've ever heard of diffusion of innovation, um, there's a, I believe a professor named Everett Rogers, who in the 80s created a, a set of frameworks around the idea of diffusion. And if you've ever heard the language of like early adopters, laggards, um, that's really his work um, along with some other folks. And so that's something, that's an idea that I've been aware of for a little while. Um, and if you really wanna nerd out about the concept of how ideas spread, I would definitely start there. But I think it's also, an interesting moment, this is sort of what I was alluding to at the beginning of, so we have these epi epidemiological models of how contagion spread. And that, I mean, I, I'm not, I didn't study epidemiology. It didn't um, have a good sense of, you know, contact tracing or um, social distancing or not distancing and how that creates uh, vectors and uh, foments, you know, viruses in the population, but I think that's all really helpful language. Um, and those concepts can be exported into thinking about things that are helpful contagions, like ex uh, experience, like knowledge, like ideas. And so I think about something like a podcast also, which is a way of spreading ideas, right? Like this all started because you were interested in spreading the idea of stories that were untold. And, um, you know, I guess, you know, separate from the pandemic, I just, it's fascinating thinking about 
how an idea takes root um, and to use a different metaphor like around you know nature and germination like how it blossoms and how it um, spreads uh, and and seeds itself and I think you know what also happened in 2020 was a real especially for lots of white people like a real um, reckoning and spread of racial justice or injustice and, and the, the knowledge around how that has shaped America. And so I think, you know, that's an interesting way to look at the spread of ideas because um, in certain communities, those, those ideas, um, you know, separate from like the real world feelings and, and trauma that people have around them um, have been taking root and like growing for a long time. And then there are other communities where those ideas just like there has been no uh, plot of land where they those ideas could could grow. So I think it's also interesting just thinking about those models and those um, metaphors for talking about the spread of ideas just in, in lots of different contexts in terms of like how we evolve as a species, how we evolve as people, how we evolve as citizens, um, because it's always going to be like ideas are spreading all the time. I think the sort of missing ingredient often is personal experience with something. You know, they these ideas of, you know, racial injustice had taken root in those communities because, of course, they, ha they were experiencing this day in and day out. And I think finally seeing that video for a lot of white people who had not been, you know, personally aware of this really brought it into their personal experience to say, oh my gosh, I just saw that. I witnessed that, you know, and so then realizing, wow, this is real. This happens, brings it into a new perspective. I think that's often the case too, in situations where, you know, in the abstract, you might think one thing, but then when you have personal experience with it, you realize it's a completely different thing. Like, let's say, you know, you, uh, you had no experience with homosexuality, and then suddenly you realized, oh, my daughter's gay. Hmm. Totally different experience now. And I've seen this happen in families where they suddenly go, you know, completely do a 180 on their feelings around things. Because when you have that personal experience with something, it gives you not just a whole new perspective, but a whole new, I don't know, way to take root. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like you're looking at the garden or you're living there right right exactly and I think that's true of, of of so many things like it's um it's it's like um going to another country for the first time right you can only understand what it's like to um if you're at least an English-speaking person English-speaking American yeah go to another country and be immersed in a a language that's not yours and be immediately uncomfortable um recognizing that you can't get away with your English because not everyone speaks English um, or that you might not know what different foods are or that you might not re recognize songs on the radio. So many or, different you, or you might make a terrible cultural faux pas and not even well, realize it. And I, I, there's just no describing what it's like to be in the, in the front seat of that experience. Um, and you can you know, you can read books, you can read, you can watch movies, but there's nothing like, yeah, personal, like lived experience to understand um, what it's like to, 
to be uncomfortable in, in this case or, or anything else. Yeah, to create that kind of humility. I think a lot of people had that same reckoning as well with COVID, that at the very beginning, there was a lot of sort of questioning of like, is this really real? Is this really happening? What really is this? And then people started having personal experiences with it. People they knew were getting it. People that, you know, they looked up to were getting it. Personally, they were getting it and going, whoa, this is not what I had heard at all. Yeah, and it's interesting thinking about the personal experience aspect because I think that there are there are probably three buckets of people when, when it comes to COVID. There are people who, um, you know, lived and breathed it and, and had it or um, were exposed to it. And so it became very real in that first person yeah. way that you're describing. There are people who had that kind of second person experience where they saw someone have it and actively and you know maybe we're part of that person's healing or part of that person's uh, caretaking or whatever. And then there are people who never really experienced it firsthand but believed in it. And maybe there's a fourth group who right <laughs> who like, just still don't believe it. <laughs> still don't believe in it. But the third group is people who never experienced it firsthand but believed in what people were saying about it. Mm-hmm. And that's such an interesting um, phenomena, I guess, because what that requires is, is social trust, right? Like I didn't personally, I was very fortunate. Um, none of my family members were, uh, like had COVID. Um, and I didn't see anyone personally who was experiencing it, at least not that I knew of, but I did read accounts of it and was, you know, horrified. Um, and that really like instilled the fear of, literally the fear of COVID into me, but I, I believed it before I even um, read those accounts because I trusted the systems and the individuals who were talking about it. So like Fauci, um, I mean, I didn't really know who he was like most people before the pandemic, but I mean, I was listening to what he said, right? Like I trust, I trust scientists. I trust, I trust the systems also that provide information that keep people safe. And I think that as like the the sort of counterpoint to that, um, there are lots of systems that are designed to not keep people safe. Yeah. Um, and we could talk, talk about those two things kind of in concert with one another. But because I believed in these things already and like those beliefs have been deeply ingrained in me for many years, if not like since I was, you know, a kid, um, it was easy for me to just say, oh, like the people, the people I trust say that there's a pandemic, there's a pandemic. Like, you know, there's nothing more to it than that. But I think they're what the, the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers and the people who are like COVID is a flu. I mean, they're not just um, drinking the Fox News Kool-Aid. There's a larger, it represents a larger mistrust in social um, like in, in, in society, but also in institutions that I think yeah. this is just, it's just like a symptom of, right. um, but that the mistrust is really where like the larger problems lie. 
especially medical institutions. And that, again, you know, when you look back at, we were just talking about racial injustice. These are the systems that are designed to keep us safe. Medical systems, the justice system. These are things like policing. This is stuff that's intended to keep us safe. And so if we can't believe in those things and we can't trust those things to keep us safe, it really causes deep problems. And that's exactly yeah. what we're looking at. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that there are certain systems that are designed to probably not keep people safe or keep some people safe. And that's right. definitely what this country is reckoning with in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to the medical establishment or like the healthcare industry slash institution um, or like the NIH in particular, like I think that there's a lot of reason to trust um, that institution, but I can also understand people who you know, mistrust the government in general yeah. um, on, bo on both sides of the aisle, right? Like you hear extreme right-wing people and extreme left-wing people and they often sound very similar in some ways. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that the, the, the trust has been degraded over time. And there, there are interesting, you know, like barometers. There are people who track trust in government, trust in um, industry, trust in business, et cetera over time, I think Edelman is like one of the um, groups that has like a trust barometer. And so you can even see how that does um, change over time if, if it's like something that you're really fascinated by. Yeah, how does mistrust spread? That's another interesting question. How do we build trust and then how does mistrust spread? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think that, um, so I just got a new, a new uh, a puppy uh, new to this world new to me um she is three and a half months old and i've definitely learned a lot about trust with this dog um and i don't think that people are that <laughs> dissimilar as much as we like to think of ourselves as complicated creatures um <laughs> there's definitely some foundational you know elements of trust that i think are true probably for all mammals um if not all creatures of higher or mo moderately high intelligence. Um, but I think trust is, is really about consistency, right? And reliability, like say that you do, or do what you say, say, say what you do and make sure that people um, see that, right? It's like, uh, if you say that you're gonna do something, do it. Like if you say that you're gonna pick someone up at five o'clock, be there at five o'clock be there at 4.45, 4.55, even better. Um, if you say that you're gonna follow up, do it. I think there are also things that are kind of more interpersonal that can contribute to trust. Um, I think that when it comes to how trust spreads, that's an interesting question that I would, I'm gonna circle back on, but I think mistrust can spread um, for it's kind of like a mirror, a mirror image, right? Inconsistency, lack of clarity, um, lack of words matching action. I think that's a really big one. Um, especially we were talking a little bit earlier about the idea of like what, what you can see right in front of you and what's part of your personal experience. And um, I'm reminded of this uh, talk that I saw a long time ago between 
Bill Nye, aka Bill Nye the Science Guy, and Ken Ham, who's like a creationist. And they were each trying to prove, I believe, their own perspective, evolution versus creationism. And it was a really fascinating conversation um, because here you have these two people who believe very strongly in their own systems of thought. And I'm not sure that Bill Nye won, you know, won. That's in air quotes for everyone listening at home. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I took from that conversation was Ken Ham's idea about observable reality. And when it comes to uh, when it comes to things that we can observe, it's easy to relate to them in, in a personal way, right? I know that there's the sky outside because I can see it with my own eyes, but can I see the fact that there's a galaxy beyond the one that we live in with my naked eye? No, right? Like I need a telescope and I need probably an advanced telescope and an understanding um, of the meaning of what I'm seeing, right? Like the context behind it. Same thing with a microscope. Like I understand because I trust in science that germs exist. Have I ever seen germs? No. Like I don't, I, I trust in the models, right? I, tr I haven't proven these things outright time after time in my own life. Like I, I'm exporting a lot of my trust um, in other people because I just don't have time or effort or energy or frankly desire to like tackle all of those things by myself. But, but if you don't, and if you believe in, um, you know, if you don't believe in science and you believe something else, then like what your naked eye and what your personal experience um, shows is like all you have, right? So I think there's also that interesting kind of element of this where it's like trust is created by what you know and what you see. And that's why the consistency is really important. And mistrust, I think, is, is sometimes like the absence of what you know and what you see. And, um, and the way that you can try to make sense of that, of that chaos or that emptiness. Um, and I think that's, and not having the consistency over time is when those rumors and those that like fear mongering and the, your own interpretation of the data can really um, also blossom. And so that's where like conspiracy theories and, and people who, um, yeah, just conspiracy theories in general. That's where that really lives is just like already eroded social trust and then a vacuum of, of information or communication or a narrative around what's actually happening. Yeah, it's very compelling to have, you know, doubt <laughs> in those moments. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's so when we, I think you really put, put it in perspective there of there, when there's a vacuum I think what we do is we fill it with the most interesting story or the most mm -hmm. uh the story that fits best with our belief system right you got into some really interesting territory there of talking about you know well, I still trust even if I haven't seen you know all the evidence or I don't have specific evidence for this and that kind of gets into faith doesn't it that you kind of start to have faith in something if you have enough trust in it over time, which has been demonstrated. Yeah, that's an interesting word to call out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
in the context of a conversation that theoretically was about science, but really science in faith or science and art, you know, whatever duality you want to draw with science, I think it's really about just trying to interpret the world, right? Mm -hmm. And like with science, there's a method to it. Um, with faith, there's also a method to it. It's a different method. But with art, who knows if there's a method? <laughs> it seems like yes, yes, probably lots of creators would say there's a, there's a method. Um, <laughs> perhaps you included. Um, Creativity is, I mean, I think it's beautiful in its messiness. And that's part of why we love that process is because it is so open to, you know, idiosyncratic interpretation. But yes, I do think there's a method. And I think that part of that method is is faith and is trust, is trusting that inspiration will come if you keep doing the work and you keep showing up. Yeah. I mean, I think the the way that you're describing faith, at least right there, is, is also hope. Right. Yeah. I think and the, those two are, you know, they're they're kissing cousins um in lots of ways. But I think that faith is um it's different, right? It, it's the belief that something will happen. Hope is the belief that something good will happen um, or maybe a particular outcome. Um, but faith is, is you're exporting your trust onto something else. And I think that for lots of people who are, you know, people of faith, um, that can be very comforting in the way that it's comforting for, um, for a child to have a parent, um, for a, a dog to have a, a master. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's comforting to um, export some of your decision-making, export some of the logic, export some of the energy into living life to something else. And I think that's that's why we have faith. That's why we have models. That's why we have frameworks. It's all a way of concentrating what is an enormous amount of decisions that the average human has to make every day into, you know, like, I know if I follow these rules that, that something good will happen, as you said. Um, I know that if I, if I um, brush my teeth every day, that it's going to help prevent dental, <laughs> dental issues down the line, <laughs> gum yeah. disease. Um, and I think there's, but, but like, it, it goes back to the like, but how question. And it's like, but because the people said so, right? The smart people who spent their time and all their, all their effort when they were young, learning how to prevent bad, bad outcomes on behalf of a lot of people, they are the people who said, do this. And they're smarter than me. Like, I don't know shit about dental care besides brush your teeth, floss them, occasionally probably every day is what my dental hygienist would say and you know don't eat a lot of sugar and like that's these people have so much more expertise and so much more knowledge and I think part of this is just trusting other people's knowledge um and I think about people who are um in my life who don't trust other people in that way and I just think like ugh you must have a lot of time on your hands. Cause like, it really saves me a lot of time by like trusting people and not having to do all the work myself. Um, there's like a trust market and I'm, I'm subscribed to the trust market. Yeah, I mean, belief is a very interesting thing. I think it's very powerful to decide to believe in something. 
And I've sort of come to the conclusion over time that like, well, if my belief is powerful, then why not just believe, you know, in the thing that like feels, feels good in my soul. But then you, you know, you have that question of like, if I, if there's evidence that seems to be supporting both sides, right? How do you make that decision? Do you say, well, this, this is what I want to be true. And therefore I'm going to choose to, you know, believe this or, well, this is what everyone around me believes. And so this is probably what's more likely. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult decision to make, right? And I think it's very tempting to, like I said, come up with the most salacious or incredible or sort of magical, mystical story that we can and project it onto things rather than just look at, well, it's probably this very pedestrian <laughs> explanation. Yeah, and um, I think that we're, we're also kind of conditioned to have these, um, like, fantastical explanations for things because of, like, <laughs> I feel like a little bit of a Debbie, Debbie Downer saying this, but just, like, because of TV and the media, right? Like, everything yeah. is super sensationalized, but, like, science, you know, tells us the, like, parsimony, right? Like, the simplest explanation is often the, the right one, and, yeah. but I think that I think that people people create rumors and people create stories for themselves out of all sorts of things. And I think almost all beliefs probably come from like, just because of the nature of what they are, they come from things that are not, not proven, not yeah. evidence-based, right? Like I believe that people are good, but there's lots of evidence to the contrary. And there are lots of horrible people in the world. Well, Personally, I think that to think of people as good or bad is kind of a misunderstanding of, you know, humanity and the concepts of good and bad. I think everyone's capable of great good and great evil and really our our perspective on what is good and what mm -hmm. is evil is very based on our circumstances and, uh, you know, the, the filters that we're looking through as well. But that's a whole other conversation. No, I think, I think, I think you're right. And I think there's a lot of nuance there and, you know, not everything should be or can be broken down into good or bad or right or wrong or yeah. um, just or unjust. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll t turn it to you then. I, I'm curious, like, what are, um, how do you think about belief and how do you think about, um, maybe also you were sort of hinting at this before, but like, beliefs that you hold that not other pe people, other people around you don't hold, like contrarian beliefs or maybe even taboo beliefs, if you want to get there. Yeah. So I've really, more and more, like as I get older, I really believe that focus determines reality, that, you know, we're, everything is out there, right? That like all possibilities are, are kind of real and probably true, but it's really what we are choosing through our little lens to focus on that then is sort of reflected back to us. I also think that, you know, we, we, we create that reality in a sense through agreement, but also through, you know, our, our filters, right? That when we, it's sort of like that quantum experiment, you know, you have the, the little slits, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're observing it, it's different than if you're not observing it. And so our observation is obviously very powerful. Our, our perspective on things can literally change the outcome of things. And so I think when you are surrounded by people who are saying, no, 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 this is reality. This is what's true. This is what's real. It can be 
really uh, hard sometimes to say, but that's not what I'm, you know, choosing to focus on. <laughs> and, and making that choice can be really disruptive, actually. For example, um, I'll, you know, get, get out of the clouds here and get into the, the concrete. Um, it was a really big leap of faith on my part when I decided not to go back to a nine to five job and to create, you know, a business for myself. And a lot of the people around me in my life were like, what are you doing? Like, this is completely irresponsible. This is insane. You're putting your family at risk. You're putting yourself at risk. Like this is, the consequences of this are just too big for you to handle. Mm. And, and so the decision to say, I don't think that's true. I actually think that anything's possible. And I actually think that I'm capable of much more than you probably think. And that, yes, it's going to be difficult and there is going to be a transition period, but that this is going to, you know, this is going to balance out and I'm going to create something here that, that I'm excited about. Um, though those, that lost me some relationships, you know, that, that have not fully recovered, <laughs> I will say. And over time, yes, I have sort of proven that I can do this and it's okay. I'm not going to die in the street. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm finding ways to support myself and, it's supporting me now on so many different levels, not just that financial level, but also in finding meaning for myself and creating something that I'm actually, you know, I think would not be there in the world if I weren't creating it, you know? And so uh, <laughs> I guess the bottom line is, I think there are times to listen to you know, the, the, the social contract and to agree and say, yes, okay, everybody agrees that this thing is dangerous and we need to kind of band together and, you know, keep ourselves safe from this very real danger. I think there are other times when people will tell you, this thing's really dangerous. It's really scary. You need to be afraid of it. When you have to just check in with yourself and say, I'm not sure that's true. I think I actually need to, to go toward my fear instead yeah. of away from it to get the lesson from this thing. And it can be very difficult to, to, to sort through which is which. And there's a third category, which is things that no one tells you are dangerous and they are. <laughs> right, right. In fact, people will tell you it's very important. Yeah, you got to do it. This is good. Everyone does it. Everyone does it. I did it. Therefore, you must. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I love hearing a little bit about your story. Um, and I feel like for all the, uh, the haters out there, you know, like you'll have the last laugh. <laughs> Probably <laughs> have had many last laughs. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I think about the haters too, it's like, well, you know, I get to create what I want to create and they get to create what they want to create. So if I'm a bad guy in their reality, okay, you know, that's what they need. They need me to, to play a villain in their story. So, okay, I can do that. You know, it doesn't actually change fundamentally who I am or what I'm worth. So like, cool. I, I think the, the more I have played different roles in other people's like perspectives, uh, the more I realize that it doesn't actually change me and the less afraid I am of other people 
being mad at me or seeing me as making a bad choice or seeing me as, you know, uh, harming them. When I look at my own actions and I go, I'm actually very proud of how I handled myself in this situation. So if they walked away from it feeling victimized, I feel like that's more about them than it is about me. And that can be a very difficult perspective to come to. It's actually a lot of what I write about in my book, uh, Enough, which is all about breaking abusive patterns. Because emotional abuse, a lot of the time, is just somebody saying to you, you know, uh, you are the perpetrator. Now I am the victim. And that person who has felt victimized over and over then suddenly going, oh, I don't want to be seen as a perpetrator. So now I have to do the, you know, the, the dance of please forgive me for whatever it is that you think I did wrong. And it keeps them stuck in that cycle rather mm -hmm. than saying, oh, okay, well, I guess this is my time to exit then. You know, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's interesting thinking about, and I don't know if you you want to go here, but um, the idea of, um, you know, ideas spreading also in interpersonal relationships, not just across distant connections, um, but also how they can um, manifest or germinate, like in, you know, in conflict, in resolution of that conflict, in growth, etc. Absolutely. So let's transition a little bit here to, you know, solutions, thinking, thinking forward, what, how can people like the people listening right now, how can they recognize when they are seeing false information being spread and how, and what can they do about that? Because I think false information, uh, in fact, not, I think, I know that false information, unfortunately spreads much faster than real information. They've done a lot of studies on this and especially on the internet, False information travels very, very quickly. So how can you recognize false information and what can you do when you see it out there? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I'm probably not the right person to answer it. Uh, <laughs> but I know that a lot of false information is often in like a kind of a journalistic context um, or about public health um, issues. And so I, I don't want to weigh in too much because I, I'm, I'm really not well-versed in combating misinformation. But I think, um, I think a good critical thinker um, is probably the person who avoids falling victim to misinformation. And what a good critical thinker does is make sure that they understand the origin of the information. So do things have a source? Is the source reliable? It all goes back to, to trust, right? Like yeah. if the source is the New York Times, for example, that's a very reliable publication because they have a lot of uh, journalistic integrity, which means that they fact check, they make sure that their sources um, are the people that they say they are. I mean, they've had a couple of slip ups recently. Uh, and so that, if they keep doing that, that'll definitely degrade their credibility um, as, a, as a source of journalism, but they're doing their research. That said, but then they did come out and say, this was a mistake, we apologize. They, they, they owned up to it. And that's an important aspect of it. So I'm glad, yeah. you, glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're doing their research too. So it's kind of like, is this, if the source is reliable. And so I guess that the easiest thing to me is like, just 
read reliable sources of information. Like your aunt Linda or your uncle Bob, like what they read on Facebook from their friend is maybe not the most reliable piece of information unless <laughs> it's a first-hand account. And even then, if it's like completely ludicrous, like maybe take it with a grain of salt. But I mean, science like journalism is all about tracing the origin and all about um, reporting the truth. And so I think that a good consumer, a critical thinker, a good consumer of information is, is gonna be pursuing the truth. Um, and sometimes the truth isn't what's get re what, what gets reported. Um, and sometimes like the, the narrative becomes more important than the truth that underlies it. Um, but you know, that happens I think in life as well. Um, and so, yeah, if there's any takeaway, it's like, just have reliable sources of information. Um, question, question and doubt. You used the word doubt earlier. Yeah. And do I want search. <laughs> do your own research. Um, it, it's kind of like to kind of wrap up some of the themes of, of our conversation earlier. Like if you can, if you trust, trust the people to have done their job, that saves you time. Um, and it saves you effort and energy. And if you trust the sources, then you don't have to do all the background research yourself. I mean, a really good critical thinker would be doing the background research plus trusting the sources. Um, but if you don't have, if you're like a lazy critical thinker, <laughs> um, <laughs> the reliable stuff and then think about it. And then it's like, what do I need to take away from this? Um, and I think that's, that's the big thing that maybe like some of the conversation around misinformation um, misses the point on is like, okay, well, like now what, right? Like, what do I do with this information about Pizzagate? It's like nothing, don't do anything. Like this is clearly misinformation. Um, but if it's reliable information, that question of like, now what, like, how does this actually change my life? How does this change the conversations that I have or the way that I think about people um, in my community or my, my world, like maybe those are the questions we should be asking. Yeah. I do think that, you know, what you resist persists. And so the more energy you give to things that you don't want, the more, you know, the stronger those things become. And so often what happens is we see something false and then we, you know, repeat it to say, Hey, look, this is false, but we're still repeating it. That's, that's a really good point that, you know, if you find misinformation, probably the best thing to do is just don't do anything. <laughs> just leave it alone. Yeah. I mean, there's also the element of like, you know, Nixon saying like, I'm not a crook, right? Like no one was saying you, you were a crook before. <laughs> like, you call yourself a crook by saying you're not a crook. Exactly. Um, or when, when Hillary like said, I'm not a puppet, like, all right. But like, like if you're even, <laughs> engaging in that and you're negating it like you're also a little bit saying it and one of the things um that i really liked about how obama handled the whole like birth certificate thing is like he didn't acknowledge it it was like this is like so far out of like the realm of um like reality that like it right. doesn't even deserve to be engaged with and so the conversation about obama's birth certificate was just kind of like, it only happened in, in the fringe and it never got really pulled into a real mainstream conversation, which is to say like, does this, is this actually something that needs to be validated or checked or whatever? And so it was like, 
you know, is always just relegated to the side. Um, and I think there's a lot of power in that. And, yeah. and, in choosing to engage in which conversations um, will ultimately, like if you choose to engage, it's gonna, the person that you're speaking with, is gonna, it's gonna give them power or it's gonna give the idea power if, you're, if, if it's a new person. And so that's also how like ideas spread across networks. Um, and we could talk more about that as well, but, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, what would you like people to really walk away from this conversation with? What do you really want them to know or understand? We often think about how the role of media, for example, in how ideas spread, whether they're negative ones or misinformation, misinformation, full ones, um, or positive ones, either stories or knowledge or innovations. Um, and we don't, I think we discount the role that interpersonal communication and conversation and dialogue can have in changing people's hearts and minds. One of the things that I have thought a lot about over the last, um, I guess, 10 months is how do I gauge in different difficult conversations or conversations that where I have a really different viewpoint than the person that I'm speaking with. And I guess, you know, for the listeners, like they're, there are ways you can do it, right? Like ideas take time to spread. They take time to, to root and to germinate and to seed and grow and blossom and then spread um, on their own. But I think it's always, if like you really believe in something um, and you find that other people do too, that you like, go for it, right? Like, <laughs> like I, I mean, this all happened, even me being on this podcast is, is because you a long time ago had the idea to have a podcast. And then you had the idea to join like a social network that we just happened to meet on. And I had that same idea a while back, but it was also based on the fact that we both probably believe deeply in the power of connection. And and like, that's an idea that's been reinforced time and time again in my life. And I imagine the same is true for you. And so I think like, yeah, if like, if your beliefs and if your faith has, has merit and has, um, has, is creating positive positivity in the world, then like spread that <laughs> evangelize <laughs> like spread, spread that message and, and don't discount, um, the consistency and reliability also aspect of it like over time because you're not going to change you're not going to change someone's mind on something that they've held for their entire life um in in one conversation but you might change their mind in eight conversations held over a period of six to eight months <laughs> um if you engage them in the right way which which should be you know advocacy lists uh, inquiry-based, leading with curiosity. Um, and so I guess, yeah, if there's anything that I want the, the listeners to take away, it's that change happens because of one conversation at a time, one where ideas get shared, um, and that, you know, ideas can change the world. 
Absolutely. I love it. I would say I have found that you don't actually change people's minds. What you do is you change their hearts and they change their own minds. Yeah. I love that. I think that's absolutely right. I want to do a quick little exercise with you, which I always do with my guests. Okay. So I'm going to have you close your eyes for a moment and take a nice deep breath in and out. And as you breathe in this time, I want you to see colored light come into your body. What color was the light? It's uh, white, yellow, almost like a Christmas light. It's nice. Free that again. Free that again. That's nice. It feels warm. I like that. Yeah, so now, sort of sunshiny. Yes, sunshine. Let's breathe it in one more time. I love it. Sunshine breath. Okay, now I'm going to wave a magic wand over here. And everything that you deeply desire has just come to pass. It is all now real. And so I want you to look around your life without opening your eyes. Just visualize what is now around you, now that your life is absolutely ideal and exactly as you want it. What do you see? I see a lot more green. Mm. I I think that I definitely am in nature. Yeah. Okay. I want you to feel again that sunshine is on your skin. You can feel that. Mm-hmm. I want you to feel the the nice soft grass under your feet. It's mm-hmm. warm and just a little bit dewy and wet. I'm there. Perfect. Now I want you to breathe in and just tell me what you smell. A little bit of dirt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, of flower, like flower, flowery smells. Floral. Beautiful. Floral yes. notes. <laughs> And this is such a great time to smell those floral smells. So I bet those are fresh in your memory. So I want you to take a little walk and you're going to come down to a place where you just feel like, oh, this is beautiful. And I just want to stop and enjoy this for a moment and tell me where you've come to. I'm in a meadow. Mm -hmm. There's wheat or a wheat-like plant Mm -hmm. with a tufty head that's kind of glowing in the sunshine. And there's a narrow path that loops its way through the wheat or wheat-like plant. Yeah. So I want you to grab a little grain of, you know, the wheat berries there and put it in your mouth and, and chew on it. And, and taste that kind of hearty, nourishing flavor of it for a moment. And just really feel that it is giving your body absolutely everything it needs. 
that you don't need anything more than what you have here in this moment. That is enough for you. And how does that feel? Peaceful. I want you to continue on and something just unexpectedly delightful occurs. What is it? A butterfly appears. <laughs> Tell and me about I'm the butterfly. with some of the other butterflies and I'm describing a child's fairy tale. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Please don't judge your ideal world. As, it, as it's being built. As it's being built. It is exactly what it needs to be. So you see these beautiful butterflies. What colors are they? White and yellow. Very nice. And one of them lands on you. And as it does, you realize that you've gained a new ability. And what is that ability? I suppose it's that I can talk to animals. All right. Plants. I can, I can convene with nature in a more communicative way. So what does the butterfly say to you in that moment? It's not saying anything. Do you want to say anything to the butterfly? I want to say, keep up the great work. We I love it. I love it. All right. And you can open your eyes. Thank you for coming on that little journey with me. Likewise. <laughs> yeah, I always love that exercise because it's so interesting what people see and it's often not what they expect to see at all. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that it's just a little gift that I leave you with that you can anytime access that space within yourself. That perfect world is always in there waiting for you anytime you need it. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Where can the people at home find you? On Pine Street. <laughs> <laughs> come to my house um <laughs> they can find me on instagram and um linkedin and maybe i'll give you just the details there yeah what's your handle on instagram it's w3 t b l4 n k 3 t wow you're gonna have to write that for me <laughs> i'll give it to you afterwards it's fantastic uh, it's wet blanket in ah, in leaf speak. <laughs> know it. All right. Nice. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, Rachel. This was a really wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was very delightful and such a fun way to um, just have like a really meaningful conversation. And I'm so glad that everyone who listens to the podcast is able to take part. Me too. And I'm so glad that we connected. Me too. Thank you so much for being here to witness that. After all, a story with no audience to receive it 
is like a plant with no soil to take root in. If you found this episode worthwhile, please pass it on. And if you've got a story the world just isn't quite getting, I'm here to help. Check out my website, thatsallowed.com, to get your free ideal scene meditation and start releasing your masterpiece today.